HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Want to cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower? Register now for PASA's 2024 Sustainable Agriculture Conference. Discover resources, services, and products at our expansive trade show, and explore more than 70 educational sessions on climate-smart practices, food justice, soil health, and more. Featuring a dynamic lineup of speakers, including Reginaldo Hasle Marroquin, farmer and founder of the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance and CEO of Tree Range Farms, and Reverend Dr. Heber M. Brown III, pastor, community organizer, and founder of the Black Church Food Security Network. Find your community at PASA's 33rd Annual Conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 10th. Register now at pasafarming.org slash HRN2024. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash HRN2024. Welcome to Dyed Green. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. On today's show, we are speaking with Harrison Gardner, who is one of the co-founders of Common Knowledge, based in Kilfenora, County Clare. Common Knowledge is a nonprofit social enterprise organization uh, based in the Burren, and they are focused on sharing skills around building, making, mending, and growing, believing that between us all, we have the knowledge needed to create a truly sustainable future. He's also the author of Build Your Own, Use What You Have to Create What You Need, which is a beautiful book, and it's designed much like a cookbook actually, filled with beautiful photographs and uh, techniques on how to do things yourself that you maybe didn't think you could do yourself. When I first picked up the book, I opened it up and I flipped through it. And my first thought was, maybe I could actually do this. I think that's what you're supposed to think. Yeah, absolutely. There were all these really interesting parallels with food that kept coming up that we didn't really have to force at all. They were just there. Um... One is the book, which uh, it really is organized like a cookbook with recipes and, and skills and foundations that you can kind of build on, much like you would a cookbook, and designed specifically for people that are looking to get better at that skill, you know? But I did really love hearing from Harrison about the connections that the project has had to food and the role that food plays 
in their build school and in the programming that they run, the various private chefs that they've had work with the project over the years. And then also, I was really pleasantly surprised to learn that one of Harrison's first renovation projects in Ireland was developing the Fumbly Stables. Yeah, so many really cool connections. And the conversation was on the maybe on the longer side of one of our interviews because there was just so much to talk about, so many interesting connections and stories that he was sharing with us and so much work that they're doing that's super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, bringing it back to food again, Harrison brought up in the interview this idea, you know, when they were talking about having food available or having food as part of the programming with the building school, the idea that people are in a much better place to learn and absorb the knowledge and participate in the programming when their bellies are full, when they know where their lunch and their dinner is coming from, and then related to that, when they knew where they were going to sleep that night, they would have a roof over their heads. And I think that's something that is super powerful. I'm always wondering where, when, what's for lunch. So I, I totally identify with that. It made me think of free breakfast programs at schools and about how young children are able to better learn and absorb knowledge when they've had breakfast in the morning. Common knowledge, you know, teaches people how to build their own houses from the ground up and teaches all sorts of skills beyond just building the actual structure. You can learn how to make concrete countertops. You can learn insulation. You can learn all of the sort of overarching how-tos and the the structural knowledge, for lack of a better phrase, that you would need if you wanted to be able to build your own house, if you had some land and if you had some space to be able to do so, to spend the money to do it yourself in a safe way and not be crippled by a mortgage. I loved when Harrison was talking about the values of the organization and that one of their main values is actually delight, which is something that I think would speak to a lot of our listeners. Um, The joy and the beauty involved in actually making something yourself, whether it's a countertop, a shelf, your own living space, as well as the the joy and the delight in working with other people. So empowerment, self-reliance, and community. Yeah. And Personally, talking to Harrison made me want to go to some, if not all, of their courses that they're uh, going to be working on this year. So I hope our listeners feel the same. And stay tuned for our interview with Harrison Gardner. Harrison, welcome to Die Green. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Max. I thought we could start by getting a little bit of your personal backstory before we get into some of the really interesting and exciting projects that you're working on. So could you tell us a little bit about your background and particularly, you know, what about your upbringing caused you to get interested in building and then your journey to Ireland and how you found yourself there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I was I was lucky enough to have uh, two parents who were very stubborn and determined to to achieve their goals regardless of how much they were earning. And so they um, they built their own house in Australia, which wasn't completely affordable for them at the time. And and it took it took six or seven years of my childhood that we were like heavily under construction. 
And we moved into that house like very early in that process. So I really grew up in a building site and that wasn't a bad childhood for me. I, I had a lot of fun. I was surrounded by toys. I was surrounded by this ever-changing environment. And uh, I didn't really, I didn't really know the benefits it was going to give me down the line. And my parents didn't either. They were pushing me towards much more, uh, I guess, white collar kind of careers as I was growing up. But the thing that really stuck with me and the thing I was always drawn to was creating shelter. And in Australia, uh, I guess I was, you know, in high school in the early 2000s there and housing climate in Australia at the time was suggesting that I would never own a home, that I would never be able to buy a home, that I'd never be able to pay a builder to, to build me a home, much like what the housing climate in Ireland is like right now and a lot around the world. It's, it's a scary time for people entering the housing market. Um, and for some reason, that never scared me because I knew how to build houses. And while talking with friends and talking with peers at the time and how this was a very big thing, and they were talking about lives where they would never own a house and they'd rent for their whole their whole life. I always wondered why I didn't have this fear, why I was never actually concerned about the idea that I would be able to create my own shelter. And um, and it's because my parents my parents started me off with with some very subliminal learning about how easy it is and how structures work and how many mistakes you can make and fix uh, without anyone noticing. So that really got me into into building and I finished high school. I didn't have any interest in going to college or pursuing any of those wider color careers. Um, and all I wanted to do was actually go out and discover the rest of the world. I wanted to find culture, uh, all the cultures that had led to creating these these spaces and these uh, kind of experiences that I'd been hearing about and Australia, while it is very progressive, is very far away from everywhere else. So Australians, when they do leave, they tend to leave for a while. So I I left and I, I rarely came back for 10 years. Um, I, I went to East Africa. I went to India. I went to North America. I kept kind of just following the thread. And the thing I was really doing with most of my time was building. I was learning new building techniques. I was working with communities who were having to be very creative and agile with the building materials that they were using, whether that was slum communities in the middle of the city in Ahmedabad in India, or whether it was villages out in Kenya, it didn't really matter. The, the, the mindset and the mentality was exactly the same. It was, what are we surrounded by? How are we going to create shelter? And how do we manipulate these materials to create shelter for ourselves? And that was so inspiring to me and something that I really got, I got hooked onto. And kept following that thread of, of learning different building materials around the world and working for various companies. And then I ended up in Ireland in, um, geez, when was it? It's, it's 2024 now. So it was 2016 when I ended up in Ireland and I had never been before. And I was between a couple of building jobs. I was wrapping up a job in Iceland and my next job was down in Malawi. Uh, both building jobs and a friend had just been to Ireland and just spent some time with some incredible people who own a cafe called Fumbly Cafe in Dublin 8, which I'm sure you've heard of through through your, your channels many times. And um, so I, I booked a ticket to Ireland and I went and met Ashling and Luca who were running the, the Fumbly Cafe at the time then. 
And we got chatting and they had just bought this building next door to their cafe called The Stables. And it was in heavy disrepair. And so I struck a deal with them that I would build it for free for them if they fed and housed me. If I could build a bedroom in The Stables for myself first, and if I could eat in the cafe for every meal, then I would uh, work on that building for free in exchange for that. And uh, that's how I landed in Ireland and ended up spending some time there. We've been to the Fumbly and the Stables many times, and it, it's very beautiful. So well done. Yeah. I, w- I wonder if when you're at the Stables, you found my little, my bedroom's still there. It's up in oh, the Oh, up in the, yeah. In, mm-hmm. in the loft. Yeah. That, that's my, that's my bedroom. I, I built, that was the first thing I had built in that space. So I had somewhere to stay when I first landed in Ireland. Yeah. We booked a private dinner there one time and the chef, it was Rose Green, the chef who was cooking for yeah. us on that evening was sleeping up there because she didn't yeah. want to drive back to Westmeath after she was done cooking. Yeah. So, amazing. Yeah. Rose Green is actually, is actually connected to us as well. And we'll get into it later, but Rose is a student of the, the build school program and, uh, and has done a lot with us. So that's great that, you know, Rose and, and she's an amazing chef. That's she's great. coming on the show soon. And next week, I think. Yeah. So through the Fumbly, I got to meet, uh, a lot of really great people and and it was that community around that cafe the family did such an incredible job of creating this this community around it this network of people who would all get their breakfast or the coffees in there would bump into each other and then would go out and do these things and in 2016 when i was in ireland ireland was just coming out of the recession and people were full of hope things were cheap rents were cheap things felt possible and this community of people around the family were were really brave and really trying things out and really supporting each other. There were knife makers, there were furniture makers, there were event designers, there were interior designers, people trying things out, so many of them failing. And the community was just there to support and pick each other up and help each other out and go and and you know go and be waiters and waitresses and at an event for a friend if they needed to be. And it didn't matter if that was their profession or not. And I just fell in love with this community that was working so hard together to create the kind of city that they wanted to live in and the kind of Ireland that they wanted to live in. And two of the people I met through the Fumbly were Katie Sanderson and Jasper O'Connor, who um, now have this amazing company called White Mouse, making peanut reus and, and hot sauces and different things. But at the time, we're doing a pop-up restaurant out in Connemara called Dillisk. And I, having never been to Ireland before, they were like, why don't you come out to Connemara and see what we're doing out here? Help us out. And so I did. And it was it was this beautiful, beautiful summer back in 2016. Um, there was there was a lot of sunshine. And my job at Dillisk was to uh, dig a hole, build a fire, heat up all the stones that we were then going to cook a lamb in underground for five hours before the dinner every single night, a leg of lamb or a neck of lamb or whatever it was. And uh, so while the fire was heating up the stones, I had to swim out into the bay and collect the kelp that we were going to wrap that lamb in and the nori that we were going to stuff into all the all the cracks and crevices of it. Um, once once I got back with the kelp, the fire was usually usually ready. I took the fire out, put the lamb underground, covered it all in sand, covered it over, and that was there for five hours. And then I had to go to the other bay and catch cockles and razor clams and whatever else I could find for, for the dinner. And I spent a whole summer living this idyllic life of, of 
cooking lamb and swimming down and collecting kelp and and collecting cockles and things right from the bay um and to be honest between the fumbly and my experience at at uh Dillisk, i had this delusional idea of what ireland was like and what food was like in ireland and what the whole experience was going to be and so when i left after that first summer it was about eight months i spent there um after that first trip to ireland i just wanted to keep coming back and i did so my my work that had me traveling around the world a lot i used to stay in each country for a while afterwards until i went to the next country but i just started coming back to ireland and i wanted to keep being part of that community and keep networking with them and after uh, after a year i bought an old ruin in county clare which is now home to myself and my family and my two daughters and uh and we're very much there now but it it all started off from this uh summer that i've never been able to recreate since then of of uh everything being about food everything being about nature and the weather and the environment that we were in and it was it was a really beautiful experience that is a really wonderful origin story for you and your work there i'm thinking there's obviously like a lot of directions we could go in now um could you talk a little about common knowledge and the organization and what the trajectory was from, I guess, where you just kind of left off the story to getting that off the ground? And how did your sort of your personal interest in building, did you always have an interest in education and doing the workshops and sharing the knowledge? And how did you end up bridging those interests together? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of that time that I was traveling around the world, including the time when I passed through Ireland, I was working for a company called Earthship Biotexture, who are based in New Mexico in the States. And I was a foreman for them and also a teacher. Their, their model of construction is bring 30 people onto a building site to help build a building as quickly as possible and, and teach them the techniques as, as we go along. So I, I learned a lot. Um, at Earthships and and I had got a lot of great ideas. And when I was with them for seven years, and then when I when I started being based more and more in Ireland, I started building my own house there and really wanting to invest my time and my energy into that physical house, but also the community around that. And I live in County Clare uh, around Ennistymon, and there's a great strong community there. And then I met my my wife Erin, and we got pregnant with our first daughter Inari. And it was that moment that I, I decided I didn't want to travel anymore. Didn't want to be traveling for work anymore. I wanted to, I wanted to do what I did in, in Ireland, but find, find the exact parts of it that made sense to me. You know, there was a lot about what I was doing with Earthships, which was not sustainable for me personally, or necessarily what I, what I thought the world needed. And the biggest takeaway I got from my time with Earthships was while we were running these courses that were teaching people some very specific skills about building off-grid and building with recycled materials and and building passive houses the thing that people were getting most excited about that was making them like literally shake with excitement was learning how to use tools for the first time right it wasn't these specific parts of building that are so excited to us seasoned builders who who have been doing this our whole life and are looking for the innovative or the best way to do something most of the people who were coming to learn from us had no building experience at all. And they were being handed a, a power drill. They will be handing a tape measure and a pencil and told to go and do something and build something. And, 
and the confidence they were getting from that and and having someone believe in them and believe that it was possible for them to do something was so powerful for them. And so it was that piece, that tiny piece of it that started um, my wife, Erin, and I started this program called Build School in Ireland. And it was run from our house and we were basically teaching people the fundamentals of building. We weren't teaching any specific building technique. It wasn't about timber framing or building with earth or or anything anything specific or dogmatic. It was how buildings work in general, how all buildings work, and how there's similar principles that apply to all of them. And so I designed a, a one-week-long course and invited people just by an Instagram post uh, to come and learn. And so that first course was eight people sitting around our breakfast table and we would sit there for the morning and we would talk about building and talk about different aspects of it. And then in the afternoon, we went out and built a building. And over the course of a week with eight people, we built a small cabin and it was a, it was a really transformative experience for them. They were, their minds were blown that they, that they just eight of them with one person kind of leading, leading how it all went, had managed to build this structure. And so they told people and I put it out there again. And the next time there were 25 people who wanted to come and then we needed to run another course. And then there was, there was 30 people or over that every time. So I needed to hire more instructors. And within two years, what had gone from just a couple of people around the breakfast table was, was four instructors and 30 people on every course and four to six courses every year. And then, and it was going great, but it was, it was a lot. It was taking over our house. All the food was being cooked in our kitchen and food was always such a huge part of, of the building course. You know, that was another thing that I learned from all the different versions of, of building courses I'd helped run over the years, but also ones that I had attended as a student was that the ones where your basic daily needs of food and accommodation were looked after were the ones where everyone learned the most. The building courses where people were there to learn something, but weren't sure what they were going to be eating at lunchtime or if they were going to like the food or if there's going to be enough of it or where they were going to be sleeping that night and if they're going to be comfortable. When people were distracted by those basic human needs, they weren't really able to learn as much or, or dedicate their time and energy to this thing that they were learning. And so it was always a really important aspect for us with Build School that we looked after people's basic needs so that they could focus their energy on learning. And so for, for those first two courses, my wife, Erin, was doing all the catering. But very quickly as it got bigger, we asked Katie Sanderson to come down. And Katie was the first chef that we had running, running the kitchen at the build schools. And, and Katie was incredible. And then after, and Katie did it for about a year and a half with us. And then we got bigger and we needed, uh, Katie got pregnant with her second daughter. And we needed to expand our own operation and Neve Fox, I'm not sure if you've had Neve on on the podcast yet, but Neve's an incredible chef in Ireland who's done who's done amazing stuff here. Um, we've had our food. Uh, yeah, we've had our food. Yeah. Okay, on the podcast. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. So so Neve ended up coming in as our chef for a year, um, and that was 2022. And so Neve was our chef for all of 2022. And that felt great. And Neve was totally able to keep up the standard that Katie had set for how we serve people and the kind of food that we we deliver. And when we moved on to our, our new site where we currently are, which I'll get to in a, in a minute, but the chef story continues where Neve, Neve stepped down because Neve was pregnant and we managed to get in Ashley Gribben. 
And Ashley's a, another incredible chef who trained with Adelengi and and had moved to the west of Ireland working working for a new pub that had opened up uh, locally to us, uh, but was free and ready to do something new. And so we invited Ash to take over the Common Knowledge Kitchen. And Ash is still with us and we're, we're so lucky to have Ash. And Ash is now starting to teach cooking courses with Common Knowledge as well, which feels like a very, very natural progression for all of that. And um, I totally distracted myself with talk about chefs and food and <laughs> don't, don't remember the where babies, we were in the yeah. other, other story. No, it's great. I mean, it's great. Thank you for uh, bringing it back around to the food connection for us, right? No, well, it, it's, it's, I'm not even doing it for you. I'm not trying to tailor to your needs. You know, it's such a real part of everything that we do. And we, as we built this organization, which is common knowledge, that's where I was up to. So we were running build school at, from our house and, and, um, I got approached to make a TV show by a production company. And, uh, after six months of back and forth about what I was comfortable making and what the show was going to be about and what felt like it was feeding into this vision we had of the the building program and the school. We we did say yes to making this TV show. And I we really needed help in how we were going to uh, use the energy that was going to come from the the TV show, from half a million people learning our name overnight and learning what we were doing. And how we're going to use that to help grow the build school in a sustainable way that wasn't all about us, but was about people learning these skills. And one of the last build schools we did before we officially became common knowledge, um, Fionn Kidney came along as a student. And Fionn is, is one of the co-founders of common knowledge. But Fionn initially came and met us by coming as a student to learn how to build something for his own house. And we got chatting and Fionn was really taken with what we were doing at Build School and the way that we were encouraging people and equipping people and bringing this community together. And so we reached out to Fionn to give us advice and give us some guidance on, on how to turn this thing into something that could handle the, the attention it was going to get. And Fionn comes from a social uh, entrepreneurship, social enterprise kind of and, and a more business background than I do. And Fionn very quickly was be able was able to was be able to show us what common knowledge could become, what build school could become. And so together with Fionn, we launched what we now call common knowledge. Um, and we started this social enterprise. So we changed our form. We turned ourselves into a non-for-profit social enterprise that that just allowed us more freedom to work as a community, to do community projects, to give us a level of transparency and trust for the work that we were doing, because it was never about building a building a business that we could sell to someone else. To be honest, I don't think anyone else could run Common Knowledge. It's so unique to Fionn and mine and Aaron's skill sets that I don't imagine anyone jumping at the opportunity to take on a project like this. But it works really well for what we're doing. And so we created this social enterprise and it started growing. We were still running from our house and we started this journey to find a new site for our uh, operation because we needed the space from our own property. But it was also growing very, very quickly. We, ha we had over 800 people come through our house um, in 2022, which was 
it was a lot and it was it was either us or common knowledge one of us had to go from that from that property and so we started this journey for looking for a new site and looking for a place that we that we could grow into that common knowledge could really really take and initially we were we were looking at really industrial buildings warehouses disused schools it was all about the education side of things in the properties that we were looking for and we were finding it difficult to find the right kind of place and and this one property which is just 20 minutes away from from my home just kept popping up for us and we kept kind of pushing it to the side and it was an old retreat center called the bog hill center and it had 50 acres of land in the burren it had 13 rooms available for rent it had a kitchen it had a dining room it had a big hall in so many ways it did seem perfect but it seemed way bigger than anything we could imagine owning at the time but as all the other doors kept getting shut that was the only door that still felt open and so our first request to our board of directors of common knowledge who are a voluntary board of really experienced amazing people of which monkan is is on the board of um our first request to them was to allow us to pursue this idea of buying this 50 acre site which was about half a million euros and it was it was amazing that they said yes i guess we made a good pitch to them and they believed that we could do it um and so we we started this journey in 2023 of purchasing this site that that was going to become the home for common knowledge and it's you know January 2024 we're only just out of the other side of completing this journey but we did manage to complete this journey we managed to buy this half a million euro site completely through loans from our community um we created a community bond so that members could invest in our project earn an interest rate but know that their money was doing was having a great impact and working in the community parts of the the money was raised via donation and we had over 800 donations to our initial crowdfunder to help us pay the the deposit on securing the land and a year after this journey is out and having to learn so much about legal contracts that I never thought I was going to have to learn and about the the purchase uh, process and everything we now are the custodians of this 50 acre site and we've renovated it we've made it work for our current needs we have so much further to go with this still but it really feels like the place where common knowledge is going to be able to grow and flourish and welcome people in and somewhere where we can keep investing our time and energy into something that is going to have as as great an impact on the community as possible. And so that that's where we are now. Um we've got this new site and we, we've got this beautiful strong community a lot of who are financially and energetically really invested in what we're doing as well. And we're using this site to run courses just like we always did before, like the build school program and we have more specific courses teaching everybody how to weld or build furniture or or concrete countertops but with this new site we're also able to teach people how to grow their own food and we have an amazing permaculture coordinator Kira Parsons who's working with us as well um this year we're looking at expanding out again and starting to bring textiles back into it teach people how to use sewing machines how to fix their own clothes how to create things that they want and the site is enabling us to do all of that it's enabling us to host dinners we we've been hosting the sour suppers uh last year which was a way to work with local producers and farmers 
and and then invite people from the community up and introduce them to each other introduce people to the farmers that are working around them and the food that they're creating and ash did an amazing job of creating those dinners and everything that those dinners were about and so yeah that, that's where we're at with common knowledge now sounds like heaven <laughs> really <laughs> um congratulations on that somewhere Along the way, while you were planning all that, you also managed to write a book, which is gorgeous, by the way. So I wanted to talk about that for a little bit. Um, And we were curious about the format. What inspired you to write actually a physical book instead of, for example, a YouTube channel, which seems like everybody's doing these days? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for even knowing about the book, though. That's flattering to hear. But the the book was something that was a really natural progression. Oh, wow, there it is. I just saw it flash across the screen. Um, the Yeah, the book is really, really close to my heart. And it was a heavy collaboration between myself, my wife, Erin, who's a designer and, and a great copywriter, it turns out, and great at, great at checking the way that I teach and the way I explain things. And a good friend of ours, Shantanu Starik, who took all the photos. And if you've seen the book, you know how important the photos are as, as part of that story. But the book came about, um, I was always going to write a textbook for the Build School program. It was always something I'd been meaning to do. I'd been compiling all my lessons and different thoughts, and it was going to be a fairly dry textbook to accompany the Build School program. All the all the flourish and fun was in there in person, and these were the notes that people could take away with them. When the TV show came about, it seemed like an obvious opportunity to make this book more widely accessible and to create something that all of these people who were going to hear about us could could actually get a bit more of an understanding of what we're doing and a bit of a taste of it without having to come and do a course with us because the courses are expensive and people have to be quite a way along their own journey to commit to one of those courses. So the book seemed like an amazing way to kind of bring people in a little bit to I guess my journey with building so far, but really what we were trying to share with people now was that we we believe that everybody can learn how to build their own shelter. Not everybody will, but everybody can. And as society changes and as everything changes, more and more people are discovering that that might be a viable option for them and maybe the only option, the only practical option and affordable option that they've got left. And so we started writing this book well i started writing this book i went up to donegal i went into a little cabin by the sea and i i was there for two weeks with some very basic canned food and and a couple of bottles of whiskey and i i wrote the entire book in two weeks and then i and this was before before we had a publisher before anyone was interested in it it was just we just had to get it out and I think um, that's something Kate's got a book she's got to get out. So maybe you should thanks. try that. Two weeks, yeah. yeah. Some canned food, <laughs> some whiskey. Yeah, well, yeah. We see, also see have you on the other kids, side, so, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> I think Inari was actually uh, like six months old at that point. But Erin gave me that out. She went and stayed with her mom, and and I went and uh, yeah, I went and did this thing, and I got back and literally on the drive back from spending that time in in Donegal riding, I got a call from my agent who had been pursuing publishers for me, but we had gotten 15 rejections by that point, And I had just committed to publishing it myself. Uh, I got a call from her saying that Gill Books were, were interested in, in publishing this book. 
and if I wanted to have a meeting with them. And so I had a meeting with them a couple of days after getting back and everything felt good. And we had a contract within a week or two and we were just so excited to kind of have this, um, I guess have this confirmation or this, this reassurance that this was something worth writing about. And this was something that not just people who were desperately trying to build their own house, but that the general public could find some connection to and find some way into. But now with a real publisher on board, we really had to make sure this thing was widely accessible. And so the reason, the, the core idea behind the building book that we created was that it was going to need to be like the best cookbook you had ever touched, you know, like a cookbook that inspired you, that gave you ideas, that made everything feel accessible. Um, something that you could sit on the couch and flick through and and feel feel kind of drawn to and inspired by, but also something that if you spent time and read, you were getting really, really uh, accurate information and information that you could put into practice, the underlying principles behind it all. And so the concept behind the book, and I guess the format of the book, is that it is a coffee table book. It's something that could lie around anywhere that someone might flick through when they go to a friend's house and find it. But also that if you spend half an hour and you read a chapter, that you'll learn something that you didn't know before. And you'll understand something about the house that you live in and the buildings you're surrounded by that, that you weren't aware of before. And trying to create a book that meets everyone where they're at was kind of tricky at the time. And that's why the photographs became such an important piece to it was that the the photography had to be had to be inspiring. I wanted it to be as as attractive as as looking through kind of a beautiful Instagram page, but every photo had to be related to the stuff that we were talking about, about the physics and the engineering and all these dry topics that are usually so so unsexy. We needed to find a way to make them make them beautiful and attractive and show the the best versions of them in the built world. The times when we've used that boring knowledge to create something that is a home and a space and a shelter for a family or, or people. So, yeah, that was the that was the journey with the book. Yeah, the book, like, obviously, I think you achieved your goals in terms of the photographs and the overall, like, the book is beautiful. And yeah, it does absolutely. read like a really nice cookbook. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel like a textbook. And, uh, you know, in terms of that, the aesthetics of it, you know, a lot of times when people think of do it yourself, I don't think they're thinking of the beauty of it necessarily. I think they're thinking of like, how can I just get it done? And I've seen some examples of like, I'm sure we all have, right? Some DIY work that, yes, it's very functional, but like you would, it would never win any design awards. Yeah. You know, where does that fit into your vision of things in terms of the aesthetics of the work itself? Like, do you think, yeah, yeah, how do you approach aesthetics? You know, because a lot of times when you think of beauty, I think a lot of people are thinking of something that's either something that you need to be, you know, incredibly skilled to achieve. Yeah. Or something that's done by a machine or a huge team or, or something like that. And they don't think it's something that they can accomplish on their own. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's a very intentional part of everything that we teach and how we do it as well is that homes are meant to be unique. You know, there's no cookie cutter home that that is going to suit your needs and your dynamic needs and my family's dynamic needs as well. That, that does that just doesn't exist. And 
we we really believe that homes are a reflection of who we are and how we live and our dynamic. And the reason that we need to know building skills is because as we change, our homes need to change to reflect that as well. Our homes need to keep evolving to keep up with us evolving. And until we're finished changing, uh, our homes aren't finished changing either. And if we aren't able to make sure that our homes do reflect our needs and our hobbies and our desires, then they start limiting us. You know, we start shaping our dreams and our hobbies and our desires to fit the space that we've got to work in. And such a huge part of, or I guess a huge driver of why it's so important for everybody to learn just some level of, of these building and space-making skills is that that's how we open up our imagination and our creativity and our ability to, to be able to do some of these things that we want to try out, whatever they are. Um, I, I really think that the biggest advantage of knowing how to build something and how to create space for yourself is that you get to make it completely unique to you and unique to your family and unique to the things that you love and, and want to try out. It's an expression of you. And that can be really intimidating to people who don't feel like that's something they've got to express. But in the same way that we all have favorite foods and we have favorite tastes, but we can go to a restaurant and someone can feed us food that tastes delicious and is done in a way that we've never tried before. Buildings are the same way. And it's as much a part of our DNA as, as food is, you know, as long as humans have existed, it's food and shelter. They're the two things that we have been, we have been creating for ourselves, adapting, constantly manipulating to, to suit what, what's available to us, where we are, the climate we're in, the context we're in, whether there's 100 people eating that night or 100 people coming to stay that night, whatever it is, human beings have always been adapting and evolving these two spaces to, to suit our ever-changing environment. And I guess for me, a long way along my, my building journey, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years, it's it's very fun for me to be able to experiment and try things out with building. For most people who are coming to building as as the first for the first time in in the last year or two, it is more practical. It is that I need shelter, I need a space to live, and how do I do it? And we can teach that, and we do teach that. We teach someone all the skills they need to to follow a set of plans and build a house completely by the book and and as a inverted commas normal house should be built but we also teach them everything they need to know about manipulating those materials and creating a space that is the kind of space they want to live in and we really pride ourselves on if someone wants to create anything that our job is to teach them the skills they need to try that out and they're going to fail the first time. The first time people try try to do this stuff, they they do it wrong. And that's the point. That's the process of learning. And I think we've we've created quite a uh, distorted kind of view of what our first attempts at something should be like via Instagram and Pinterest and the way that we see the world and these perfect buildings and these perfect plates of food and these perfect renditions of the things that come up in our mind. And what we're trying to do at Common Knowledge is create a space where it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to make mistakes. It's it's the space to ask questions and to try things out. And it is all about experimentation. 
And that that is how we evolve. That's how we progress. That's how we discover new things. And personally, that's how we find the things we love. We've got to get it wrong enough times to find the version of the thing we're trying to create that actually works for us. And I, I also think, just to add to that, that our connection to the things that we create is so much stronger than our connection to the things that we buy, right? Homes have become so utilitarian where things are just meant to serve a function. The house is just meant to provide shelter from the outdoors. The kitchen is just there to, to create food, to nourish us. Um, and that is just not what life's about. That is not the journey that we're on. It's not simply ticking boxes and filling up the tank and keeping going, you know, that all of these things that we do, anything that we invest time or energy or, or space to, it, it needs to serve us more than just keeping us alive. That's the absolute bare minimum, right? And we can't be aiming for the bare minimum. Survival survival's the bare minimum and we're, and we're going to do everything we need to do to achieve that. But what we should be aiming for are spaces that make us happy, that bring us joy, that meet some of the needs that we have, and that inspire us to keep going and keep creating and keep exploring. And I think that's what that's what we are giving each other when we encourage each other to learn something new, to make those mistakes, to go through those teething problems at the beginning and try and learn a new skill or create a new space because that's really what we all need. And, uh, and our job as a community is to encourage each other to do that, I think. You're really kind of speaking our language right now. I was smiling before because Max just texted me a message. He said, <laughs> we're, we're never hiring anyone again. Sorry, it's all DIY now. You did this. I think some of the things that I'm hearing from what you're saying are this kind of balance between um, feeling empowered enough to be self-reliant, but also being able to rely on your community to share these skills and help you develop these skills. And I know that the culture is a little bit different in the United States, but here, aside from the fact that that property is so expensive and housing is so expensive, if you wanted to renovate your kitchen, maybe you'd be spending $80,000 or something like that on it. Or if you want to get new windows or if you, you know, anything that involves a kind of a specialized skill, whether it's contracting or electrical or plumbing, these days it's really hard to find somebody with those skills. So even if you have the money, sometimes you're waiting like a couple of months to be able to do that. And so I think there is something that is really exciting about being able to get the confidence to do it yourself. And I suppose for someone that like has a home, perhaps it could be a little bit less intimidating than building something from the ground up because you actually have a structure that you can live in while you're working on it. I don't know, Max, if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah. I mean, I have a question that's sort of in a slightly different direction. I just wanted to mention that I've written three cookbooks and, you know, food cookbooks and the, the way you were talking about mistakes very much resonates with me personally, because that's always what I'm talking about when someone's learning how to cook. It's like, look, mm -hmm. you have to like mess it up a few times. And, and that's not something to fear. That's part of the learning process. You know, in particular, burning things is really important because you realize like the limits of where you, you can apply heat, which is really what one of the fundamental part of cooking. And it's like, you don't really know how to roast a piece of 
a vegetable, say, until you've mm. roasted it too much. Because the the optimum mm. the optimal place where you want to be is sort of just before that, and until you've like touched the, you know, it's like it's like when a baby or a kid like touches something really hot for the first time. It's like okay, now you know it's that's too hot, and you don't really want to touch stuff like that again. And that's you know yeah. if you if you if you haven't learned that skill, then you're not really going to be able to make it much. You know, yeah, much farther I love, than I that, love that. You know? But it's really, mm-hmm. yeah, like the whole idea of making mistakes is something I think we should be encouraging because it is really a big part of the learning process. Um, okay, I wanted to ask about. Um, can I say? Can I say one thing before we before we move on? Is that I, I actually find the the DIY culture in the states really encouraging and and really open compared to Ireland. And I, I think Ireland could learn a lot from the anything's possible attitude that that the that a lot of people have in the States. Um, and maybe it's just a much bigger population base. You know, there are people in Ireland who are on their homesteading journey and creating so much for themselves and having a brilliant time with that. But I've spent many years working in the States and I, I miss that. I miss that really encouraging culture of like you want to try something yeah go ahead and do it give it a go like what's the worst that could happen and it's really invigorating and i i've always really appreciated that and the harder things get i guess economically in our societies and with housing crisis and things getting expensive and fuel prices going up people are less and less likely to take risks and that's totally understandable and and it's very relatable and i think What's really important is that we learn to take smaller risks. We we find we find the things that still allow us to learn and evolve and try things out, but that the stakes aren't as high because there's something that happens in us. There's this there's this little like I don't know I'm going to say the word dopamine here, but I don't know if it's the right word. But there's this little dopamine hit that we get when we are the solution to the problem we've got rather than paying someone else to be the solution to the problem we've got or money being the solution to the problem we've got when something breaks and you fix it the thing that the thing that happens in us that you've just solved this problem that that you had um it's huge and that can be something as as small as like you know fixing a wobbly table to to building your own house but there's something that happens and it's really important for us to almost daily be trying to make sure that we are doing something that gives us this little sense of of I'm I'm doing okay here I'm making progress I'm I'm solving problems or I'm finding my way through this uh, in a very practical way because it's something that no one can ever really take away from you all the other aspects of that and the virtual aspects that we've created for how many likes we get how many people are forwarding our posts on Instagram these virtual versions of those dopamine hits they don't last and they're not remembered by us or anyone else. But when you install a shelf in your house for the first time, every single time you look at that shelf, you know that you did it and you created. And also when something goes wrong with that shelf, you're so much more empathetic for the person who built it and the person who created it than when you paid someone else to do it. And that shelf is just a product for you. When you've installed that shelf yourself, you're the one who possibly installed it a little wrong or put too much on it that it broke, but you're also the one that knows how to install it again and fix it. And and the relationship that we have to these things can be much more forgiving and empathetic and progressive than the transactional, like purely capitalist approach to 
we almost treat the entire house and every single thing within it as a product now. And our expectations are that when we pay for a product, it should be perfect. And um, the more that we can get involved in that process, be empathetic to the construction workers we are working with, be be sympathetic to ourselves and everything we're trying to do, then the more enjoyable and kind that whole process is going to be. I was going to ask a little bit about the, so when you came for the first time and you were involved with Fumbly, you know, that was like a particular point in time where there was like maybe more of an opening for that type of uh, DIY culture. And it seems like as say, like the cost of living has increased, particularly in Dublin, but like throughout Ireland, how have you found the reception to that type of DIY culture? Obviously you have grown your organization, but do you think that it's important to have access, like how important is the access to affordable housing or land to build on to the kind of work that you're doing? And how has it changed, you know, how has it changed the way that you approach this or the reception to the work that you're doing that the prices of land and of housing continue to, and the materials actually, obviously, uh, you guys are having it in part, there's an energy crisis that's still going on. Um, Does it make people more open to like trying to do things themselves or is there like a, a fear and a tightening of things that comes along with that? Yeah. So, yeah, look, there is, like the rest of the world, but I'll talk specifically about Ireland, there is there is a total housing crisis in Ireland at the moment. There's a lot of fear around it. There's a lot of people getting evicted. There's a lot of people having to move locations and change communities because they can't afford to live where they've been living for the past 10 or 20 years. And it's really scary for people. And I don't believe that there is one solution that's going to solve that problem. There's not, again, there's not a cookie cutter response to this that is going to meet everyone's need and make sure everyone feels um, feels safe and secure in that again. And I think the part that common knowledge is playing in that and the part that the stuff that we're talking about is playing is showing people that there is another option out there that in Ireland they might not have thought about before, that might not have felt like something that they could have achieved before. And I really I really see our job and the work that we're doing as showing people what's possible and showing people what they could do if they actually wanted to try it. You know, in a one week building course, very few people are leaving that building course and actually going and building their own house. Some do, and it's incredible when they do. But for most people, that journey from the Monday to Friday of that building course is about helping them believe that by the end of that week, they could learn everything they need to, to create their own shelter, whatever version of that is for them. And that's so much more important than them learning and actually having learned every little piece to how to build a house. All we're trying to do is give people the confidence and show them what they can do, right? And what's possible for them to do. Alongside that, like our solution isn't for everyone and so many people are not interested in it and are not interested in picking up a tool and they don't consider that as a solution. And that's okay. We're just here to to talk to the people who are looking for something similar to what we're talking about. And we'll continue chatting to them until there's none of them left. 
but for other people out there, and these are really valid and important and viable solutions as well, there's much bigger systemic changes that are being talked about in Ireland, taxes being introduced to vacant properties and holiday homes and those kinds of things that more government housing needs to be built to to house everyone and, and solve this problem of shelter. And I guess personally, I really believe that stuff's important and it's really important that we do meet this basic need for shelter and this survival thing. But I really, again, I don't believe that's the thing we should be aiming for. That's our bare minimum. And and like everyone else in Ireland, I think it's all of our job. It's the government's job. It's the people's job. It's our community's job to make sure that survival happens, that people aren't sleeping on the street um, and or not able to afford their groceries because their rent is so high. But I, I, I really think we need to be aiming for something so much bigger than that that our aspirations and our goals are not survival, that our aspirations and our goals are about happiness and about evolution and growth and changing and enjoying our life and sharing that with other people and bringing other people along with us. And if we're not aiming for that, we're just creating a machine. We're creating a thing where we're surviving to keep working in the machine, to keep being able to achieve our things. And this bare minimum lifestyle is, it's really, really hard. And so I see I see common knowledge's role in in all of this in the conversation that's happening around the housing crisis in Ireland as bringing a bit of joy and and a bit of hope and a bit of possibility to that conversation beyond the basic need for shelter and you know we've even incorporated it into our values you know we've got three values as an organization true sustainability which for us is sustainable is a word that's used everywhere and what we mean when we say true sustainability is that it's not about sustainable product purchasing. It's about these things actually being able to be sustained, that they're able to be learned by you, done by you, and passed on by you to the next person who needs to do them as well. You know, that that's what real sustainability is. It's something that goes beyond us and, and beyond that initial decision to buy a product or something. Um Empowerment is our other one of our other values, which is in everything we do with the skill sharing and the sharing knowledge and sharing skills and teaching people how to use tools or whatever it is. And then our last value is delight, because we we really believe that delight is one of our basic human needs. It what we should be aiming for. It's how we should be designing our lives, designing our education system, designing our our courses and our interactions that happiness and joy should be something that we expect and strive for rather than it being a bonus on on our every every day-to-day kind of activity so i don't know if that answers your question but that's kind of what it made me think of yeah it absolutely does it also makes me think of this project that common knowledge is involved in called reimagine listun varna i was hoping you could talk a little bit about that i love this idea of collaborating with the village to co-create a map of the future. And that sounds like something that embodies all of the values that you just talked about. Yeah, absolutely. So the Reimagine the Stambana project was really led by Fionn, the the co-founder of of Common Knowledge with me. And um, Fionn did an incredible job of connecting with a, a very well-known architect in Ireland, Shelley McNamara, who is from this town of Listinvana, which is also our closest town to, to where we are in common knowledge, working with a local community organization in Listinvana called Listinvana Fulcher, 
and bringing these people together along with common knowledge and with an architecture studio called ACT Studios, who again is a non-for-profit architecture studio who works with communities. And between these four different groups, we developed this program of community consultations to, to reimagine this town, to look at its past, to look at its present, to dream of its future together as, as a community of hundreds of people. And it was a really inspiring process to be a part of and to watch kind of be laid out as ACT did a brilliant job of facilitating these consultation sessions, printing huge A1 maps for, for the working groups and the community to be drawing all over and dreaming on, um, small working groups facilitating these conversations. And for over four different workshops or sessions, we kind of led Listenvana through this dreaming and imagining process all the way to the actualizing process. And together we've created this very concise document, which is only like nine pages long. And I don't know if you've ever seen outcomes of these kinds of consultations before, but they're generally like 65 pages long and it's all text and people rarely read it. And it's usually stuck on a shelf and seen as a as a box ticked. Yes, we could we consulted the community. Now we're going to build the thing we want to build. This nine page document is so accessible by everyone, from the people applying for funding applications and developing the town to the people who were part of the consultations, um, that everybody is going to be held accountable to making sure that the direction of the town, the way that they try to grow things and develop things is in line with this very easy to understand and easy to articulate plan. And it's it, it was we we've only finished those consultations three months ago. And you know, none of the actions have been implemented yet. And it, it may take decades for a lot of these ap uh, actions to get implemented. But what was created was a basic master plan of the direction that the town collectively wants to move in. And it's going to need to be revised every five years, probably as the town's demographic changes and as people change, but it gave a voice to the young people in the town. It gave a voice to the older people in the town who have seen all this change happening. And it gave a voice to the newcomers to the town who aren't from that community or that culture and who might be bringing a lot of new ideas and new energy in. And it brought all those voices together and found that the collective points where they all met these are the things we all agree on. We want more pedestrian access. We we want less huge tour buses stopping right in the middle where we're trying to do our shopping. And we want them to, we still want those tourists to come. We still want the business and the revenue that comes. Uh, we want to develop the river that runs right through town. We want walks that go along the river. You know, these little things that are really, in, in some ways, they seem small and little throwaway ideas. Like, wouldn't a path by the river be nice? But when you implement something like, wouldn't a path? path by the river be nice into a document that is about the future of this town. It means that someone from that town, whether it's a, a councillor or someone who's working for a community group, when they're filling out that next funding application for how would you like to improve your town or, or work with the waterways in your locality, that's the thing that they're going to choose because that's what the town has agreed on doing together collectively. And it's no longer just someone's small little idea, but it's an idea that was brought to the community, agreed on by the community, and now can be acted on by anyone in the community to deliver. And it empowers everyone to be 
to be actioners in their community and not just the recipients of the good and the bad things that are decided for them. So that that process was really amazing. And so much of the process was designed and developed by ACT Studios. And uh, Fionn and Shelley and Listavana Fulcher did just an amazing job of working with the community and bringing them all together and bringing them along that journey. And it was a little convincing that had to happen at the beginning. But once that ball got rolling, there were hundreds of people showing up to these community consultations, which is just unheard of in a part of Ireland, that people are that engaged in their locality and their community. So it felt hugely successful. I am very curious about... Uh, money and funding. Um, And I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, which was that when you found the property that ended up being the common knowledge site, one of the ways that you were able to raise money was through um, a bond and essentially borrowing money from the community. And with the Reimagine Liston Barna project, I imagine a lot of the questions that come up are quite similar. How can we pay for this? How can we make this happen? And I'm wondering if the decision to do the bond was seemed very inspired. I'm wondering how the conversations around money go in terms of funding. Uh, particularly, it seems like there's a, so much local skill and, and talent and desire to make these projects happen. Is it something that you seek outside, you know, private finance capital or is this government funded or are there more sort of local circular economy type approaches to how these projects actually get done? How how do you guys think about funding these things? Yeah, sure. So, you know, like I said, uh, our official designation is a a non-for-profit, right? We're a social enterprise, which, which means that we are a community organization that there's no ownership. No one owns common knowledge. And we have a board of voluntary directors who are responsible for everything that we do. Myself and Fiona and Aaron were employees of Common Knowledge and were employed by the board of directors. Even though we came up with it and we hired that board of directors, we hired them to be our bosses, basically. And that detail is really important, that the people who are responsible are voluntary because that's what gives us this level of trustworthiness. And it's a big reason why we became a social enterprise was that There's so much funding and so many opportunities that are out there for community organizations like ours. And I guess a good way to think about what a social enterprise is, and there's probably different terms for it in the States or whatever, but is that it's almost like we're halfway to a charity. We we haven't become a charity. We're not officially designated as a charity, and we don't have the, the oversight. Like people don't get tax breaks for donating to us or anything like that, you know, but we are officially a community organization that has this structure, this organizational structure built into it that provides a level of trust that people can be sure that the work we are doing is there to benefit the community and have a great impact on the community. So as far as social enterprises go in Ireland, we're quite unique where we we generate 80% of our own income through traded operations. So the enterprise part, the social and the enterprise, the enterprise part of us of our our business is very strong. And that's our paid courses, right? That's the build school program, our short courses and everything we're doing with that. The other 20% of the income that we generate is through funding and fundraising. And that's usually through official grant programs. So there's a few bodies in Ireland who've been really supportive to us over the years. Rethink Ireland is one of those. Um, The Community Foundations Ireland has helped us support But also local councils in Ireland have funding available 
And there's bigger funding opportunities that are out there from a national level. And there's a funding body that distributes funding on a national level. And then there's EU funding that's accessible as well. And all of these different opportunities kind of require different levels of oversight and application and process to get. And so for, you know, up until now, it's been about 20% funded projects where we might go to an organization like Rethink and tell them about what we're doing, show them what we're doing, and then they might support some of our core costs with something like that. Or we might apply to a fund run by the national government, which is about community awareness and action towards climate change. And so I don't know if you ever saw it, but our homeworks program was all about that. So we got funded to run a program that was about educating, inspiring, and equipping communities to have positive impact on climate change and to make make decisions and, and actions and plans together as a community. And so we were able to run that program and develop that toolkit with funding from the Irish government done through this Pobble administrator. You know, most recently, we, we've just been awarded some funding from the Erasmus Plus program with the EU to work with a partner project down in Portugal to develop a, a mobile transportable cabin that can be worked by forest workers and moved through these forests that they're trying to reforest and plant with native Portuguese trees and get rid of the plantation trees that are there. So look, that's kind of a messy way of describing it, but that that's actually how it works for us is that where we have to be constantly aware of the opportunities that are out there for different things. And it means being aware of, of policy on a bit of a higher level. What What is the government economically, culturally, historically trying to support and fund? And, you know, when government parties change, these funds change as well. And so those opportunities change and we very intentionally created a agile organization that what we do is about people in the end. It's just about people. And the programs we run are always about empowering and inspiring and educating people. And so I'm very confident that no matter who was who was kind of calling the shots on the direction that Ireland as a, as a whole is moving towards, that we're able to adapt and shape our projects in a way that show that we're still meeting those goals because in the end, <clears throat> everyone's aiming for progress, you know, everyone's aiming for bringing these communities closer together and they're obliged to do so through a lot of these funds. And so we're constantly sifting through funds and applying for them. And now is actually the busiest time of year for us for funding applications. Um, it's the winter, we're not running too many courses and all the funds for 2024 are kind of being released now. And so we're, we're looking into all of those, but Sorry, that was such a complicated answer, but that, that's really how it works for us is that we have our level of funded work that we fund ourselves and we're able to keep our operation and our organization alive purely through the funded work if necessary. Sorry, through the self-financed work if necessary. And then we look for funding for a lot of other stuff as well. Yeah, no, maybe, maybe interesting it would, answer. Maybe it'd be more... Maybe it'd be more interesting. I don't know. I could talk about the community bonds we created as well, if that's interesting, but maybe not. <clears throat> I would I would love to hear a little bit about that. Sorry. I yeah, it's just so interesting to me. Um so yeah, I can talk about the community bonds for a moment. It was one of three options that we were looking at for how we were going to raise this half a million euros to to purchase this site as a tiny organization that had only existed for a year and a half. 
we went to the banks, we presented our proposal and ideas to the banks, and we didn't get a super excited immediate yes from them. We got a lot of questions and a lot of frowns and a lot of I don't think so's. And to be honest, their biggest problem was that we weren't a for-profit company. They really struggle to invest in something that's not a for-profit company because it's a little confusing for them. Banks don't have a long history of investing in social enterprises. So we went to social lenders as well, organizations that are specifically set up to fund, to fund social enterprises. And they were open to the project we were talking about, but their rates were inaccessible for us. The interest they wanted to charge and the terms that they were offering were totally inaccessible to us. And so our last option, very inspired by one of our board directors, Mick Kelly, who runs a non-for-profit called Grow It Yourself in Ireland, which is a hugely successful nonprofit. It's been around for over a decade, doing amazing work, getting people growing their own food all over the world. Um, so the founder of that, Mick Kelly, is on our board of directors. And Mick told us about this program that he's used before called Community Bonds, where you basically create a, a loan note agreement between any two people. And the terms are laid out in that loan note agreement. And both parties agree to it and accept it. And it's a community bond because one of those parties in this case is a community organization. And so I spent a lot of time with our lawyers developing this contract and writing this contract in a way that was something that would be attractive to investors, but also required them to believe in us and believe in what we were doing. This isn't something that someone who had never heard of common knowledge and was just trying to turn a profit on their money was going to invest in. This is something that people who wanted to see positive community action and change happen was going to see value in what we were doing and what we were offering. And so we we developed a contract that was a lower interest rate than what we were being offered by the social lenders, but a higher interest rate than someone was going to get by, by a similar investment that they would make in with their money. And then we told people our story. You know, we started with our immediate network. We've got a very strong subscription email list of 4,000, 5,000 people. After we'd kind of reached out to that community and got a lot of feedback from that community, we went wider. We went to our Instagram network, which is 20,000 plus people, and we got response from that. And then we was a kind of third step in spreading the net. We went to our board of directors. We went to everyone who had invested already uh, and to our tighter community and asked them to start talking about it, to start telling people that they knew about it, reaching out to people who they thought might be interested in something like this. And in the end, we were totally oversubscribed. We had a maximum limit that we could borrow, but but within within four months of of starting that program, we raised six hundred thousand euros um, to complete the purchase of the site and to pay for a lot of the renovation work we had already done and paid for out of our own pocket, and to encapsulate that whole loan. And, and it's a five-year loan. We're going to be paying all those loans back in, in five years' time. And we're going to be looking at our different funding options for that. And we might run the community bonds program again or something like that. But it, 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 was, it was an incredible experience as a community organization to create an opening for community members to connect at that level as well. Right. And we set a lower limit to our community bonds program of 10,000 euros because we didn't want people giving us their savings uh, for their house. We didn't want people stretching themselves. We, we were trying to connect with the members in our community who were already investing in other things 
but maybe we're looking for something that had a little bit more community focus. And, you know, some of the feedback we got from our investors was about of why they invested with us was because they wanted to invest in something that they could visit, that they could go and walk around the garden in, that they could send friends to go and stay in. They wanted to be a part of something at that level. And it feels really good for us to have created something like that that is very different to a lot of the other investments that are out there for people. Um, so yeah, it was a really positive experience for us. And, you know, we share those learnings with anyone and that process with anyone because it's it's not highly complicated, but it is all about trust and transparency. And in another way, that is just another stakeholder now who is going to hold us to our commitments, to our projections, to the path that we're going along. And that feels really good for us as a community organization that we are representing our community. So cool. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay. I mean, I know we've been, this is a really great conversation. We've been talking for a little while and I just wanted to see before we wrap up, if there's anything important that you wanted to bring up that we missed and as well as just to kind of get a take on like what's coming up next for you and the organization in the near future mm. so that we can, you know, everybody who's listening can keep their eyes open for future developments. And we'd love to hear about, you know, what you are working on next. Yeah, absolutely. So the next few years for, for common knowledge is all about scaling sustainably. We've made such huge progress in the past two years, acquired this site, made leaps and bounds in the kinds of work we're doing. And now it's time for us to, solidify all of that to give really strong foundations to all of that work that we do and and it's really about making home you know this site that we're the custodians of now that we're looking after it's 50 acres of land we have so much work we have infinite amounts of work to do on that site from the buildings to the actual landscape and finding ways to allow people to come and be a part of that and to get to know what the irish countryside is to go and spend time in a bog or spend time in a truly native Irish forest to connect with the land, to be a part of growing something like that. And so for common knowledge, you know, I would love for people just to follow us, to join our mailing list, to keep up to date with what we're doing, because we are trying really hard to create something that can be inspiring for people, that can be an example of what we can all do in our own lives, in our own home lives, to to lead the kind of lives and create the kind of homes that we actually want to be in, to be living in and, and surrounded by. From, you know, each individual's point of view, obviously I want everyone to, to learn skills. I think, I think everyone needs to, to try something out and be okay with not being great at it at the beginning and to give yourself a break and to expect that there is a learning curve and, and a certain amount of time it's going to take to do something well. But even more importantly is to encourage the people that you're surrounded by who are doing that. You know, when, when someone you know is trying something new and they, they don't do it perfectly, like that is that moment that you're there for, you know, that as a community, we need to support those people and encourage them. And, you know, so often people come to common knowledge to learn how to build a house who have been told their whole life that, they're the wrong gender, they're the wrong sexuality, they're the wrong body shape to be a builder, that they're not a builder. And that's just, it's not true. It's not the case. It's just a weird, it's a weird decision that we've made as a society of what we think a builder looks like. And it is unique to our each of our individual contexts. And 
we we all have a right and we all kind of have a responsibility to to get involved in creating our shelter and encouraging each other to do what they can to create the best life for themselves that they can. And the more we do that as a community, the more it's going to benefit us as a community altogether. So yeah, I hope people enjoyed the chat and uh, I hope people, you know, keep up with what we're doing at Common Knowledge because it's not just about Ireland, you know, the stuff that we're talking about, it's just about people. We just believe in people. We believe that people can be so much more than we're told that we can be. And we're just trying to spread that message, I guess. Yeah, I, I'm certainly inspired by this conversation. I can't wait to, yeah. to really d uh, delve deeply into your book to begin uh, to see what sort of lessons we can take from that to apply to our own home. And then also really looking forward to being able to come and visit your site the next time we're in the area. Nice. Thank you so much. And thanks for, thanks for the chat this morning. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. It was awesome. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission it is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.